Most of you know that when, before I knew the Lord, I was a drug addict for nine years. And, uh, you know, I, after I came to know the Lord and was set free, and, and God just delivered me uh, instantly with no withdrawals, and, uh, and I have hated drugs from that day to this. I don't want to mess with them. I don't like them. I like them. I dislike them a little more than I do doctors. Just saying. Anyway. I love doctors, but I don't like them. <clears throat> anyway, um, so I, I don't like the need of them in the body of Christ the way that they've become. That's what I don't like. Jesus needs to become the healer of the church again. Uh, so anyway, uh, after I came to the Lord and all of that, I discovered that I had done some serious damage to my heart. My resting heart rate was in the 90s all the time. And there's already a long history of heart disease in, in my dad's family, both sides of that family, all the way back. And, uh, and so I'm like, Lord, I need you to give me a new heart or heal my heart, one or the other. I, I need you. So we were living in northern Virginia in the early 90s. And uh, I was reading a book about something about the winds of God by Norville Hayes. I'd never met Norville, but he's a, he was a miracle-working evangelist from... Cleveland, Tennessee, who operated in signs and wonders all the time. And uh, as I'm reading this, he's talking about people in his meetings catapulting out of wheelchairs and, and all kinds of stuff, miracles that he saw, and got people getting new organs. And as I'm reading this, it reminded me of my heart, so I took my pulse again. Sure enough, 93 beats a minute. I'm like, Lord, you know, if you uh, want me to do everything you've called me to do, you're going to have to either heal my heart or give me a new heart. And the Lord said, as clear as anything, if you have Norval Hayes pray for you, I'll give you a new heart. So I got excited. I'm like, yes, okay. And then I started trying to figure out, and this is back before the Internet, you know, and we couldn't just Google stuff. So I'm like, how in the world am I going to figure out where Norval Hayes is or how to get a hold of him? And it made me tired just to try to figure that out. So I said, Lord, if you want that to happen, you're going to have to set that up because I don't know how to make that happen. I just got peace about it. A couple of months later, my friend Peter calls me. He was our youth leader. And he said, hey, he said, uh, guess who's going to be in Richmond, which is about two hours away. Two hours, a little, almost two hours south. And I said, who? And he said, Kenneth Hagan. I said, really? And I knew he was a big fan of Kenneth Hagan, you know. And he said, you want to go? And I said, sure, let's go. So the first night of the meeting was a Monday night, and I figured we'd go the first night before the crowds grew, because they always grow, you know, during. And so uh, we went down, and we got a seat uh, third row back from the front, right where Cindy's sitting, right there, and uh, right next to the center aisle. And during praise and worship, Peter elbows me. He says, look who just walked in. I look over, and there's Norval Hayes. First, only time I ever saw him in my life. Walks right down and sits in the front row, two rows in front of me. My hair stood on end. I knew the Lord had set that up. And so, uh, so at the end of the service, I went up to him and I said, Brother Norval, the Lord said if you'd pray for me, he'd give me a new heart. And he says, well, okay then. Put his hand on my shoulder, said a simple prayer. I left rejoicing. Next time I checked my heart rate, it was 73 beats a minute. It's been there ever since. 
Well, did you feel something? No, I didn't feel a thing. But I, I try not to walk by feelings. I try to walk by faith. I believe what God said, you know. And uh, so a few, uh, a couple years ago, I was unpacking this, and I'm thinking about that, and I'm like talking to the Lord about it. I'm like, Lord, you know, you could have just done that without having Norval pray for me. You could have just done that because I asked you to. And he said, oh, you thought that was just about you getting a new heart. I'm like, oh, you wanted Norval's hand on me. Oh, my goodness. And I, and I thought back, and I'm like, you know what? There's signs and wonders started following me after that time. Because Norval's hand was on me. Well, you know whose hand was on this guy? I'm, I'm trying to help you understand what, where I'm going with faith. Okay? His grandfather's hand was on him. And his grandfather operated in signs, wonders, deliverance all the time. And so we're going to draw on that tonight. Can, can you stand with me? And let's just reach out to the Lord. Father, I just thank you tonight that there's faith and expectation tangibly in the room tonight. And Lord, we're drawing on the anointing that you've released to this family. And we're trusting that Lester's hand on his grandson and his blessing on his grandson's life uh, meant something. Because we know how things, when they're stewarded, they tend to multiply generation after generation. We declare that over Lester. We ask tonight that whatever need that we came here tonight with, whether we know what it is or not, that you would minister to that need, that you would lead this man by your anointing, by the fire of God, by the power of God, and that this would be a night of signs and wonders breaking out in this church. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. No pressure, Lester. No pressure. Jesus had big feet. Yeah, no, I've heard a lot of those things. But, you know, <clears throat> my grandfather did lay hands on me. I believe there was an impartation. And, you know, some things are taught and other things are caught. So, you know, just open your heart. I was actually at a, an event last week with Lou Engel uh, called Communion Colorado. And it just worked out that I was sitting in a certain place. And what I didn't, I didn't have front row seats. I wasn't uh, sitting in the uh all access section, but Lord's like, hey, I, I called you to receive something spiritually. Just receive it, you know? And so that's how I believe it is for you tonight, that God has something special for you. You know, while you were still in your mother's womb, Jeremiah says that God had a purpose for your life. And so each of you have a unique purpose, a unique destiny, and God wants to help you fulfill that destiny and purpose. And, and I believe that, that he has something for you tonight that you're going to receive. Amen? As I was preparing for this weekend. Uh, you know, there's so many things that the Lord put on my heart, but I feel like he's given me a specific message. Uh, for those of you who don't, didn't know who Lester Sumrall was, that's okay. A lot of people didn't know who he was. He was, uh, he was just my grandpa, you know. Uh, 
You know, people are like, oh, you're Lester Summerall's grandson. I'm like, well, your name's Lester Summerall. I was like, well, I didn't know any different. I just woke up and they told me that was my name. I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything for it. I didn't work for it. But that's kind of like how I believe God wants you to understand that you're sons and daughters of God. You just, you've been born into the family, you know. You're just a part of the family of God. And so it was a privilege being raised in the Summerall family, seeing the Holy Spirit move in so many different ways. Um, my grandfather, just to give you a brief overview of his story, he was, he was uh, a young man in, his father was a shipbuilder all around the Gulf of Mexico, and he was there, you know, uh, as a big blacksmith, huge, huge guy, bigger than me, but stronger than me. The, they, the old folklore specifically said he could hold a person in a chair and hold, hold the chair out like this, that he, you know, literally was that strong from, from doing all that steel work. But my grandfather was rebellious and had been running from God and his mother, he'd come home from running, running the streets with gangs and all kinds of stuff and he'd come home and his mom was there praying for him and he'd say, get up, I don't want you praying for me. And he started having blood come out of his lungs and he had tuberculosis and he started shrinking. He literally, he lost over 80 pounds and got down to only weighing about 70 pounds. And at one point the doctors came in and they basically said to my great-grandparents, you know, you're going to need a death certificate to get a grave plot tomorrow. And so they signed his death certificate and said he'd be dead in a couple hours. And it was that night that God began to work on his heart and speak to him. And he actually had an open vision of a Bible the size of the wall and a casket that was just his size. And he said, I was between a rock and a hard place. I didn't want to preach and I didn't want to die. And so God, what am I supposed to do? And so God says, if you'll tell people about my love and preach my word, then you're going to live. If not, you're going to die tonight. And so that night, he began to repent, ask God to forgive him. You know, a lot of times we think we know people's hearts, but we don't know what's really going on inside people's hearts. Some of the intercessors from the church would come and pray for him and say, oh, God, why would you put this sickness on this innocent little boy? And he'd be under the covers cursing them, you know. And, and so you just don't know what's in people's hearts, right? And so... That night he began to break and he began to cry out to God for mercy and God supernaturally healed his body that night. And then from then on he started going out and actually he was out with his friends two weeks later at the beach and the Lord says, I thought you were going to go preach. And he says, but I'm sick. He says, well, you're out here at the beach playing with your friends. You're like, well, what are you doing? And so then him and another friend, they literally put together uh, some services and they went out and they started going to little schoolhouses out in northern Florida and southern Georgia. I mean, some of those stories are just so hilarious. We have the legacy collection that we will have papers on that after the service, but there's 17 MP3 downloads. You can hear about my grandfather's life story. You can hear about faith. You can hear about the gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit. You can hear about Joseph, how he talks about uh, a message on taking your city for the kingdom of God. Just powerful, powerful messages that we want to put in your hands just to encourage you. And I believe they will be an encouragement to you. But in his life story, there's so many funny things. But I sat and heard him as I traveled all over the world. I sat and heard him so many times that the pilots and I, we'd get to the point where we'd say, oh, here's this point in the story. Here's the next point of the story. Like We, we actually knew the story so well. But they went to these little schoolhouses, and they found a farmer out in the field, and he says, well, you know, uh, I, need to, I need to use that schoolhouse over there to preach. He says, do you have the key? And the man says, well, I do, but I'm not going to let you preach. He says, well, God told me if I don't preach, I'm going to die, so if you don't give me the key, I'm going to die, and it's going to be your fault. 
And so the man, you know, he went fishing for a key out of his overalls and gave him a key. And so they went in there and cleaned it out. And they, they had services there. And he, he said, we took up the, the first offering. He said there was 26 cents and there wasn't one nickel. It was all pennies. And so the next night he says, we're going to take up a, a chicken and pig offering, you know. He says, how many are farmers? They raise their hand. How many have chickens? How many have pigs? Okay. So he says, we had a... We had a pen over here for chickens, and we had a pen over here for pigs, and the chickens were cackling, and the the the, the uh, pigs were squealing for the supreme sacrifice that they were about to make. And he says, you know, God just provided for him in a supernatural way. You know, he had some uh, entrepreneurial skills there, and and you know, went in that. But I mean, he, the stories they just they're so funny. But he said that he, he he didn't know how to preach. He's just a young, he's seventeen years old. Only weighs like 70 pounds, 80 pounds. And he's standing up there. He says, if you want to go to heaven, come down here and pray. If you want to go to hell, go out the back door, you know. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't too gracious when he, when he had some of those experiences. But a few years later, he was actually baptizing people. And he said there was a man. My grandfather was only about five foot seven, So I got height from my mom's side of the family. But my grandfather was only about five seven, So he's baptizing people. And he said there was a man that came and he blocked out the sun. He was about seven foot tall. And he says he went to go put the man down and then he just lost his footing and he went down under the water with him. And so, you know, these people on the, on the, on the beach were laughing at him and making fun of him. And so then he says, now what we're going to do is you're going to help me baptize. He says, you grab them and you dunk them. I say, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, and you dunk them and then pull them back out. And that's what we're going to do. And so, again, they just had a wild time. He said these, these farmers would come and you'd hear like a rattlesnake sound of the swishing of tobacco in their mouth and then they'd all spit on the walls, you know. I mean, it was, just, it was a crazy scene to behold. But yet God was doing something unique in his life when he was out traveling in these little schoolhouses. And one night after traveling all through Georgia, Florida, different states, he ends up in a place called Dyersburg, Tennessee. And actually, it's wild how I remember this, but it's December the 18th of 1934, and he was there, and he started praying. He had a white suit on. It was a dirt floor, little schoolhouse, and he started praying, and he, he, I believe, fell into a trance, like what Peter had when he experienced that in in the book of Acts. And so he literally started seeing a a road. He saw this, this, like, highway of people saw the Africans in their beautiful ethnic garments and the Chinese, and he saw all these different groups of people. And as he saw these people, he says, God, what is this? He said, this is the road of life. Everybody has to travel on the road of life. And he saw these people, and then as they were walking along, they began to get bunched together even more, and then there was a group that went off like an exit ramp. And he said, who are those? He says, those are the ones that have been declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus. We'll actually be speaking about that more in a few minutes. But as he saw this exit ramp of people, he said all of a sudden the road came to an abrupt end, or what he, he used an old word called a, a precipice, what we would call a cliff or an edge. And he said people began to fall off the edge of life. And as they fell off into hell, they literally started trying to jump backwards onto this road, but the force of the crowd was pushing them off the edge. And as they kept falling off, they were cursing God and they were tearing their flesh, and it was just this horrible, horrible scene and God says to him, he goes, he says, God, why are you showing me this? He says, because it's your fault. He, hey, I'm a kid from Florida. I don't, know any, I don't know any of these people. 
He says, it's your fault. Ezekiel 3.18, if you don't warn the wicked of their wicked ways and they die in their wickedness, I will require their blood at your hands. And he started seeing blood all over his hands. And he said, get it off, get it off. I don't want, I don't want the responsibility. I don't want their blood on my hands. And God says, you have to go to the nations and warn these people. And as he began to travel all around the world, he literally got on a ship in San Francisco with $12 in his pocket and a one-way ticket. And he went by faith, trusting God. And he went and he said he saw people in Tibet and he saw people in China and he saw people on the Trans-Siberian Expressway in Stalin's Russia. He saw many of the faces that he saw on the road of life. And so that marked him and that vision, and, and I guess hearing it over and over, I know I've had my own experiences. I remember being in the Philippines several years ago and just seeing the people, you know. Jesus saw the, the people, and he realized they're like sheep that have gone astray. God loves people. God's not about buildings. God's not about ministries. God loves people, and that's what he wants us to love. He wants us to get a love for people in our hearts, and so that Vision marked my grandfather's life, and he connected with a man by the name of Howard Carter, who was an apostolic teacher from the UK, the United Kingdom, and they traveled all around the world. When they got back to the United Kingdom in 1936, they actually met a man by the name of Smith Wigglesworth. Have you ever heard of Smith Wigglesworth? And so my grandfather ministered together with Smith in Cardiff, Wales, and they met, and then he invited him to come back to his home. So for three years, my grandfather would go to Smith Wigglesworth's house and he would lay hands on him and pray over him. And then in 1939, again, as Americans, we don't think about the war until 1941, until Pearl Harbor, right? That's when we started our involvement in the war. But the UK had already been in the war since 1939. And so the UK government didn't want Americans to be there because they were at war and it wasn't safe for Americans. So my grandfather went to visit Smith Wigglesworth at his home in Bradford, and he began to pray over him and bless him. He was a tall man. My grandfather was shorter. He began to cry and weep, and, and he started to pray over him and literally started declaring about this end-time move of God that come where that God would em- empty out hospitals and that God would touch the nations in such powerful ways. And he says, I won't see it, but he said, you'll see the beginnings of it. And my grandfather shared that so many times, and I believe we did see the beginnings of that in a lot of the travels that we had in China and different places that God was just doing so many supernatural things. But yeah, we, we have a, a, a legacy of revival that we can't just let fall to the ground. It's something that we got to carry. Have you ever watched somebody in a relay race that they run and they literally reach out, they stretch out and they pass a baton forward and the other person reaches back and grabs it and they run the next leg of the race. That's what God is doing with us. And that's why today, even at the conference we were at, we were talking about legacy and how God wants us to pass things forward to the next generation. You know, whether we like it or not, we're not going to be here forever. But we are here for this season. So, Lord, how can we be here and function in the purpose you called us to function in and then pass it forward, whether it's family issues, business issues, ministry issues, Again, how is that going to have longevity? What's the plan for Freedom Fellowship? Is there a legacy plan in place? Over the last few years, I've been involved in some litigation around my grandfather's last will and testament, and it's been mind-boggling how you could put stuff in writing, but if there's no plan to execute it, it it just doesn't get done. And so it's so important that we 
take steps and are led by the Holy Spirit to move the ball forward, to, to finish it strong and pass it forward to the next generation. Amen? Um, I just, you know, there's so many things that the Lord has put on my heart, but specifically, uh, I just wanted to mention this one story before we get into the Word tonight. Did you bring your Bible with you? We got, we got some good stuff. I'm believing that the spirit of wisdom and revelation will be something that you catch. Um, I was at Bethel Church in Redding, California a few years ago for a, a leader's advance, and I was there on a Saturday where they have healing school, and I had an issue that I had to have surgery for, and I went in there to the healing school, and however it worked out, somebody had forgotten to pray for me. So I got a little frustrated in my flesh, and I just decided, hey, you know what, I believe in healing, so I don't need to wait around, I'm just going to go take communion and, and leave. So I took communion and left. So I go out in the lobby, and as I'm in the lobby, I'm standing there, I'm, a, I'm an outgoing person, I've never met a stranger, so I'm talking to people. So I'm at the coffee bar, at the Hebrews coffee bar, and it was just kind of special. I walked up and I, I just was saying what was on my mind to this lady. I said, well, you know, this thing with healing school is really special. I said, healing is a part of my legacy. I said, my grandfather was healed of tuberculosis. And then I said, and my great aunt was healed of muscular dystrophy. <laughs> I started crying like a baby. And I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have a problem with guys crying. I'm not you know, too, too hard-hearted to cry, but I don't normally cry on demand like that. I was like, whoa, what's going on here? And so then I looked at her and I go, why am I crying? And she goes, and she starts crying. And I'm like, why are you crying? And she says, you don't know me, but I have a healing ministry in Sydney, Australia, and I have a patient who comes to my clinic where I, I minister and also give uh, therapy to, and she said, I have a, a patient who has muscular dystrophy, and I told the Lord, I'll only come to this conference if you bring somebody to me who has a testimony of someone being healed of muscular dystrophy, and you're the answer to my prayer. Come on. How does God do that? I don't know, you know. But he's faithful. He's a faithful God. He's a healer. Tonight I want to talk to you, I guess, the overarching theme. If you look at Galatians 5, 6, at the end of that, you could just, I'm not going to quote the whole verse for you right now, but basically the idea that faith works by love. I want you to say that with me. Faith works by love. Let's say it one more time. Faith works by love. Now a lot of times when we deal with fear, we think the opposite is faith. But the thing is, the opposite is actually love. It's perfect love that casts out all fear. And so it's so important for us to know about the love of God. And so I'm going to start by reading from Luke chapter 4. If you got your Bibles, you can look there with me. But I just felt like I was supposed to read this verse. It's one of my favorites. Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus picking up. Isaiah, in Luke chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Come on, I'm talking about it in real time here. We're not just reading the scripture. I'm saying here tonight in Wayne County, next to Holmes County, in the state of Ohio, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel or the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty. Everybody say liberty. Come on, say it one more time. Liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Do you know about the year of Jubilee over in the book of Leviticus? It's the year that they get all their stuff back. It's the year that literally the the properties get transferred back. The inheritance comes back to those who had things taken from them. And I'm here to declare to you that Jesus is your Jubilee. That he is the one who's bringing freedom. He is the one who's bringing restoration. He is the one that's bringing all that he has for you. And he wants you to know, number one, that he loves you. Aren't you so glad that God's love isn't an ethereal love, but his love is demonstrated for us? There's a lot of guys who want to go out with a girl and say, hey, I love you, baby. Hey, I love you. But who wants to actually get a ring and say, will you marry me? There's a commitment that's made. There's a sacrifice that's made, right? God didn't just talk about love towards us. He demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The demonstrated love of God. Jeremiah 31 and 3, if you don't know that one, you need to get that one in your mind. It says, for I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I keep drawing you with my loving kindness. God said that to Israel, but he's saying that to you tonight. I've loved you with an everlasting love, and I keep drawing you with my loving kindness. Even when I fail, yes. Even when I do good, yes. He's reaching out to show you his love. And it's only the power of his love that can set you free from a religious spirit. You know, we want to, even today when I was on my way here, it's funny, I actually live among the Amish in Indiana. And I know Holmes County in this area is like one of the other hubs for the Amish community. But we as charismatic evangelical Christians can sometimes look at the Catholics. Oh, look at that. They're worshiping Mary. Or they got an icon. Well, that's just religious, you know. Or look at those Amish. They, you know, they're just riding in a buggy. That's just religious. We got all these things and these judgments that we can make about people. But the reality is religion has to do with our own self-righteousness and our own uh, innate ability to say, oh, I'm good. Look how good I am. Remember the Pharisees standing there at the Western Wall, standing at the temple saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. And how many times do we look upon others and judge them and judge ourselves? and it has nothing to do with the blood of Jesus. It has nothing to do with right standing with God. It has to do with our own externals and their own externals. You know, we go to the right church or we do the right things the right way. I think we're going to get shocked when we get to heaven. Some of these people that are there will be like, hey, how'd they get here? You know, I, I don't know that I approved of them coming. I mean, how did they get, Lord, can you tell me how they got here? But God wants us to know that he loves us 
But it's only the power of his love that will set us free from religion and from religious spirits. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, you can look at it later if you want, but it says, God is love. See, God has power, but he is love. It's his nature. He wants us to come to know him and that it's his nature to love us and to care for us as his dearly loved children. As I'm sure you know, John 3, 16, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe upon him would not perish but would have eternal life. His love is directly connected with giving. He gave us his best. See, a religious mindset, sometimes we think that God wants to cheap out on us. We think God doesn't want us to have a, a decent car. Oh, let's just get the crappy one, you know? Let's just get the cheap one. Let's just, don't, don't get the nice stuff. Sometimes God wants to give us a lesson on stewardship. If you would have just bought the nice outfit the first time, then you wouldn't have to go back to the store six times to replace it, and that actually would have been better stewardship than buying the cheap one. Are you with me tonight? But we sometimes think that God has got a poverty mindset, but that's also associated with the spirit of religion. God wants us to know that he loves us, and out of his love comes the provision of the Father. Out of his love comes salvation, comes healing, comes deliverance. You know, I, I, I didn't really have a chance to go into it today. My grandfather had a powerful deliverance ministry, and in that generation, the authority of the believer was something that was needed to be preached so much. And some people need to hear that again. But I believe that the next deliverance movement that's coming is not just about the authority of the believer, but it's about the healing of the heart. Many people are bound by demonic things because they still don't know that God loves them. They don't know that God cares for them. And so shouting and screaming and, and whatever, it, it might work in the moment, but if people are going to experience life-changing deliverance, it's going to come because they know that God loves them. Are you with me tonight? And so, again, there's so many verses that we could go into. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. What manner of love has been bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. We're a part of the family. We've been brought in. We're no longer slaves. We're sons. See, some people, they don't like, you know, again, we live in a confused world where people are struggling with their identity, right? So it's a little weird for us to have the men identifying as a bride and the women identifying as sons, but it's okay because that's part of the kingdom, <laughs> You know why we're just sons? A lot of times we want to say sons and daughters because we want the women to feel included. But we are the firstborn of many brethren because we're in the son. There's only one son. We're in Christ. We're in him. When God looks at you, he's not just looking at you. He's looking at Christ. And see, that's where I think God wants us to grasp this revelation of being connected to the family of God. I went through a whole season in my life where I started getting a hold of this real, true identity of being a son in the family of God. I'm not a Christian who's a part of the Christian religion. I'm a son who's a part of the family of God. And it might sound like I'm splitting hairs, 
But that's the reality is when we cut to the chase of us being a part of the family of God, it changes how we see God. He's not just somebody hiding behind a tree with a stick to beat us when we do wrong. He's our Father who loves us. It changes how I see you because you're my brother. You're my sister. We're a part of the family. We're, we, it's like family that just met. Good to see you. I'm so glad I got to be here tonight to meet you. It's like a family reunion. Where's the potluck? I can't smell the food. Come on, we need to have a potluck going here. I'm sure you've had a few. Tomorrow, okay, well. Ask and you shall receive, right? And haystack, watch out, Amish country. I've had a few of those in my life, can't you tell? Um, but the thing is, is that God wants us to know that this revelation of us being a part of the family of God, it changes how we see him, it changes how we see each other, it changes how we interact with each other. Even with relationships, if there's some young lady who, you know, you don't want to just, you know, be in a wrong relationship that's in an immoral relationship because this is your sister. You want to honor her and, and treasure her like you would your own physical, biological sister. So again, it changes everything around us when we understand who we are as sons. A lot of people I know, even ministers, the problem is they start identifying with their gift more than they identify with them being a son. So then when they don't get to prophesy or they don't get to do what they think they should do, then Oh, they're going to pout at church because they didn't get the mic to prophesy today. And it's just kind of comical to watch some of this stuff. I'm sure you've seen it as well. But it's like, come on, grow up, body of Christ, right? That's not who we are. Because when we have our identity and our security and our joy in him, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. If I'm working out here in real estate issues or if I'm over here doing ministry stuff, I'm, a, I'm still a son no matter what I'm doing. I'm still a part of the family of God. A few years ago, again, I told you my grandfather went all over the world, planted churches in Israel, Hong Kong, the Philippines, South Bend, Indiana, different places. But he had a friend of his named S.K. Sung, who was an amazing businessman in Hong Kong, and he controlled all the cameras and all the chocolate that came in and out of Hong Kong. And this man was so fabulously wealthy, he actually had a, an apartment complex on the, the peak in Hong Kong, which is like, you know, reserved for only the elites. And so it was just so interesting. I had the privilege of meeting him when I was younger, but then at my grandfather's funeral in 96, he says, I want you to come visit me in Dallas. Well, when a 96-year-old man calls you to visit him and you call him and the number's disconnected, what do you think? He passed away, must not be here anymore. But I found out the man had moved back to Hong Kong. So I thought, man, I have to go interview him for this documentary that I'm making about my grandfather because he was actually my grandfather's best friend. And it was so special when I was there with him and he's just sharing me about his, you know, 70-year journey with God. And he tells me about an experience he had where an angel came and stood at the foot of his bed and quoted a portion of scripture out of Luke. You know, for, for all you contextual, hermeneutically correct folks, this is going to really hurt, but I got to just say it anyway. In the story of the prodigal son, you know, we always hear about the prodigal who came home, which is a great part of the story. But there's the son who stayed home. And what does the father say to him in Luke 15? I believe it's verse 32. He says, son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. 
And this angel repeated this to him like three times. And so he actually had a banner made in his living room. I got a picture of him and I with this banner across his living room. And it was almost like an encapsulation of the, of the message of identity. Son, you're part of the family. You need to know you're a son. You need to know you're a daughter. You're a part of the family of God. When you know that, you, everything changes. Then he says, son, you're always with me. You mean when I do good? Yes. You mean when I fail? Yes. And everything I have is yours. Did you know that this thing that God has for us, that it's a, it's a global takeover? Did you know that? It's not just about us being involved in some sub, subculture in the church, but it has to do with a global takeover. He says to Abraham, in the moment that he turned away from Lot and from Sodom, he says, look north, look south, look east, look west. It all belongs to you. He gave him everything. And now in, in Romans 4, it actually says that that promise is good to the Jewish people, but also those who are a part of the household of faith, who've been joined into and grafted into Abraham's family by faith. It's a takeover. He says, everything I have is yours. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We're not just sons, we're heirs. And again, here I am in the middle of this legal issue. It has to do with, I have a right because I'm an heir. How much more so do we have a right in the kingdom because we're heirs through the blood of Jesus? Some of you forgot about the inheritance that you have. Some of you have been living in a place where you're not experiencing the inheritance, and God says, hey, it's time, it's jubilee time, and you're going to come into the fullness of the inheritance that I have for you. But it all comes with beginning to know that God loves you. If you don't know that he loves you, you stumble around in performance. I'm not going to be able to go into the depths of it, but I feel like God has been challenging me, bringing me, you know, we have those who've struggled with drug addiction and lived on the street, and they have certain types of baggage that they got to deal with, right? From, from your memories and what you've been through. But people that have been in church, they got another whole kind of baggage. And sometimes it's not as discernible as the drug addict or the people that have been through a hard life. But their stuff is the internal battles with performance, trying to perform to receive the love of God. There's nothing that you could do to get it. Your righteousness and your perfection are like filthy rags. They're dirty. It doesn't work. God not only wants to free us from our failures, we always want him to free us from our failures, but for some of us, he needs to free us from our successes as well. Because it's, 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 it's not about who's better than others. We have only one hope, and his name is Jesus. There's only one thing that will get you status with God, and it's the blood of Jesus. I want you to look with me to Mark chapter 11. I'm about to drop a bomb on you here. Hopefully, you're not going to pass out or anything. No, I'm just kidding. Mark chapter 11. This is something that the Lord has just really been putting on me, and I had to lay the foundation about the love of God for you to be able to grasp this, because I think it's, it's one of the biggest revelations that God has dropped on me in my life. In Mark chapter 11, we have a lot of scriptures being quoted by a lot of preachers, right? Have anybody heard anybody quote something from Mark 11, 23 and 24? But we're going to start at verse 12. Now the next day, 
When they had come to, out of Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar off a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said, now listen up. Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So the thing, I've heard this many times. You know, people say, well, he was hungry, but it wasn't the season for figs. And there may be revelation in that. But the revelation I want to share with you here tonight. You know, the scriptures have many faces. God shows you different things at different times for things that you're going through. But here God started to show me something that really rocked my world. And it's like, why didn't Jesus curse an apple tree? Why didn't Jesus curse a peach tree? Jesus specifically cursed a fig tree. Why did he do that? If you go back and read, we're not going to go do it right now. You can write it down. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says they covered themselves with fig leaves. Let me say it again. They covered themselves with fig leaves. The thing that God has been putting in my spirit so strong is that when Jesus curses the fig tree, he's not cursing that particular fig tree in Israel at that moment. He's cursing the system of self-righteousness. Where we try to cover ourselves, we try to do it on our own, We say, hey, you know what? Your blood isn't good enough for us. We're going to try to do it through our own perfection. And so, again, as preachers, as ministers, we'll read the scriptures in English, and we have all these subheadings that have been put in. So somebody would preach on the fig tree, and then I'll go on to another message, and then I won't come back to this. But if you keep reading in context, Jesus goes directly after cursing the fig tree, and he goes right into the temple... And he starts driving these people out of the temple. And he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he stopped them from selling their wares. I love rhyming words. He, he said, this is a house of prayer, not a house of wares, right? And so he literally, I mean, you got to understand. Let, let's just back up the truck. Sometimes I don't know if we fully get it. Here's, here's Judah Ben-Hur. We'll use a, a good old name out of a, an old movie. He's coming down to the temple because he committed adultery with his maid. And he's struggling and he's hurting and he's sad about his sin. And he comes down there and he's bringing a lamb to sacrifice because he needs forgiveness for his sins. But these people at the temple tell him, oh, I'm sorry, bro, your lamb isn't going to work. But we have a special on lambs today. You know, you could buy two for 500 bucks. You can't use your lamb that you want to give. And here, what Jesus is cursing are these people that are trying to hinder those who want to connect with God, essentially. They're trying to put a markup on your connection with God. You, sorry, you can't get a connection with God with the lamb that you've got. You've got to buy one of ours. You've got to buy some of our turtle doves. Does that make sense? So that's making Jesus pretty mad because God wants to be connected with us. And here's these people standing in the way of us connecting with God. 
So here he is cursing the system of self-righteousness, and then he comes and cleanses the temple. And when he comes out, this is what's so profound. This is where I'm, I'm going with this. He comes out, and Peter says, hey, by the way, that fig tree that you cursed died. And this is where I say, Peter's playing checkers, and Jesus is playing multidimensional chess. <laughs> He's not seeing the bigger picture here. But that's when we come into this verse that we've heard quoted so much. What does Jesus answer to Peter in verse 22? He says, so Jesus answered and said, had faith in God. What's he talking about? He says, he's saying, you can, he's like, I can curse the fig tree. I can curse this system of self-righteousness. He comes out of the temple and he says, hey, this thing died. And he's saying, believe that it can die. Believe that the system of the law can die. I think that's what he's saying. Because look what he goes on to say. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain. Notice he doesn't say that mountain. He doesn't say the mountain. He says this mountain. He just came off a temple mount. Whoever says to this mountain be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes those things which he, which he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. This is basically Jesus laying out a framework for righteousness apart from the law. Are you with me tonight? So he's trying to get us to get that. No, I thought I have, to, I have to go to the temple and I have to bring a lamb and I have to do this and I have to do that. And Jesus is saying, hey, I cursed the fig tree. He's like, do you get it? The system of religion that doesn't connect you to, to the Father. You know, John 4, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not just about the physical places and the physical offerings because I'm going to go and I'm going to be the offering. There's so many people in the church that are still caught under, they sing about grace, they preach about grace, but they still live under the law. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, it says, and Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. I don't know what people do with that. I mean, let me say it again. And Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. A lot of times we still have our minds on the systems that we have to jump through. Well, I messed up, so I need to pray for an hour. I messed up, so I need to go and do five church services. Is it wrong to pray? No. Is, is prayer going to make you right with God? Not necessarily. Jesus already paid the price. The pastor talked about it earlier tonight. Repentance, not of sin, because Jesus dealt with the sin problem. If you already believed in Jesus, then your sin problem's already taken care of. It's really the dead works that you're finding yourself repeating into those old lifestyles and those old mindsets. That's why we have to renew our minds so that we live in newness of life. It changes how we think. It changes how we talk. There's such power in our words. Remember in Daniel chapter 10, the angel comes and he says, I came from the first time that you started to pray. I've come because of your words. 
God wants us to know, you know what? We're not righteous in ourselves. It's, it's about his love. It's about his goodness. And you say, well, does that mean that we're just going to live lawless and we're going to be, you know, uh, we're going to just be undisciplined? No. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his masterpieces. We are his poems. We are his, his special works. And that he's prepared good works for us to walk in. But see, it's not coming from us trying to get perfection with God. There is only one sacrifice, and there's only one way to be perfect with God, and that's through the blood of Jesus. The religious spirit will convince you that you can be right with God through some other means other than the blood of Jesus. And that is the greatest perversion of all perversions. Why do we see priests and ministers and others, obviously it's a human issue, number one, but a lot of times you'll find sexual perversion in ministries and churches because religion is perversion. It's the flip side of the same coin. When you think that your goodness and your perfection is getting it done, God's like, ugh, it's a, it's a filthy rag. Don't touch that. Remember, one of God's covenant names is what? Jehovah Sidkinu, the Lord our righteousness. We're only right because of him. And see, God wants to get us out. Remember over in Hebrews chapter 4, the only striving that you have to do, that I have to do, is to enter into rest. You know, we have a lot of people that are trying harder, and it's like a performance thing, and it's self-help, and you need to, brother, you just need to try harder. You need to just put a little more effort into it. But that's not what he's talking about. Remember, Jesus says this, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. That's what, see, see, just like, how are we going to reach out to these people that are struggling with the religious spirit if we're not free from religion? If we're not free from a performance-based mindset? We might joke about people that don't have, well, it is kind of funny that they have cell phones but they can't drive cars, but, you know, it's a whole nother deal. Some technology is okay, but, you know, Old technology is not good, but, you know, it's all relative, right? Religion doesn't make sense. But God wants us to know that we too can be in this rat race of trying harder and trying to do it on our own. And it's so much better when it's done by the Spirit. Because what happens is self-righteousness, where is self-righteousness coming from? I'm better than that person. It's coming from pride. Now remember, the devil didn't get kicked out of heaven for adultery. He got kicked out of heaven for pride. And so in our hearts, we get a hold of some of these, these concepts, and we all of a sudden, next thing you know, we're better than that person. We're judging these other people. And again, I'm not talking that, that we shouldn't have some righteous judgment, and God discerns, you know, the discerning of the spirit, of spirits, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, helps us to discern situations. That's not what I'm talking about. But self-righteous judgment, we begin to judge others, we're looking at others, and we're even looking at ourselves in the wrong way. We're judging ourselves, And God's saying, that's not the standard. The blood of Jesus is good enough. And it's pride in us that even sometimes we, we might ask for forgiveness, but we don't want to forgive ourselves. And God's saying, I want you to be free. He wants you to come into a place where there's just a clean slate between you and him. That's all of a sudden now the door is open. You can hear his voice. Now you can have fellowship. You're not ashamed. You're not hiding like Adam in the garden, right? 
You're in that place where you're receiving. But see, this thing where this is so deep. When I, when I was in China with my grandfather, <clears throat> I, I went up into, into communist China, and we were in a camp, and, and it was so funny. It was just one of those times. Uh, I literally get out of this cart, and I told my friend, I said, the only reason I knew I was still on planet Earth is because I could see the moon. <laughs> but they had this huge septic tank, like a lake, a septic lake or pond. And they wanted me to walk through the mud. The snow had just melted. They wanted me to walk through the mud. And they only had size 7 shoes, mud boots. And I wear size 13. So here I am. I got these mud boots squeezed onto my feet. And I'm trying to squeeze my feet muscles to hold them on. And I'm walking in mud and almost about to fall into this septic pond. And so we finally get there to this place. And we start preaching. And I preach and I say, you know, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see. And all of a sudden, they hear, and then chop. And then we had some fresh chicken in a few minutes. And then I saw this hog that was cruising around, and then I didn't see him anymore. He just disappeared. And there was fresh pork, and it just, you know, it, it wasn't tasting so great. So I, I just, I had a, an unction to fast at that moment. And so... We get back to Hong Kong to the nice hotel, and my friend says, you know, I'm going to get this nice meal for us. It was like a seven-course meal. So we eat all this really good food. We haven't eaten for several days. And at the end, they bring us this soup. And it just, it just didn't taste right. It was, I hate to be so graphic, but the soup was kind of snotty, you know? And I ate this soup, and I, and I asked the guy, I said, what kind of soup is this? He goes, oh, that was a fish head soup. And I'm thinking, mm, that just isn't right. So we walk out, and the next thing you know, man, I, I'm feeling like a volcano, you know. I'm feeling like, man, I can't go to the bathroom. I can't throw up. I'm starting to get cold sweats, and I'm on my way back to the hotel room. And I literally get back to the hotel room, and my grandfather is put two hotel comforters on me. He's laying on top of me. I rebuke the spirit of death. You know, he starts like praying over me. And the next thing you know, I mean, I, 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 mean I, I was sick for several days from this food poisoning that I got there in Hong Kong. And I, my, grand, my grandfather loved to tell that story. And he said, well, you know, I didn't get sick when I was on the mission field. But what he didn't tell is that he was at a hotel having pancakes and I was eating fish head soup. So, you know, he missed that part of the story. And so... It was actually kind of humorous to hear him tell it later. It's like, well, you know, I've been on the mission field, and I didn't get sick when Lester got sick. I'm like, but you didn't eat the same food, right? But my point in that is, is that I ingested something that made me sick. And so here I want to point it out to you again. Jesus says about the fig tree, he says, I don't want anyone to eat from this tree ever again. Let me say it one more time. I don't want anyone to eat from this tree ever again. See, what happens is, well, as a pastor, we'll look at somebody over here who might go commit adultery on his wife, and we would like to counsel that person and say, hey, you don't want to do that. That You're going to destroy your own life. You're going to destroy your family. You're going to want to do this. It's going to be a big mess if you do that. Don't do that, right? But over here, just somebody who's religious, and we're like, oh, you know, they come to church, and they're just kind of religious. But it brings the same kind of detriment in your life that adultery could bring. 
If you're just going through the motions and you don't have a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus and you're self-righteous, the next thing you know, you're going to start making decisions based on your own ability to figure it out versus what God has said in his word. And here Jesus is saying, I don't want anyone to eat of this tree ever again. So God wants to set us free from religious spirit, self-righteousness, because those things that we use to cover ourselves. Well, I'm good enough because, you know, my great-grandmother was a Methodist. Or because, oh, I, you know, I gave it church two months ago, so that's why I, I have status. No, the only thing that gives us status is the blood of Jesus. That's the only hope that we had. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. And so I just feel like tonight God wants some of you, he wants to set you free from, some of you have been struggling with striving and just trying harder, and the Lord just wants to lift the heavy burden off of you tonight. God wants to lift the performance mindset. Remember, if you're a slave, you have one, one thing to do, perform. If you're a son, you can just be. God is looking for you to just be as a son and as a daughter in the family of God, and fruit will grow out of that. But if you're a slave, you need to perform. You need to try harder. You need to do better. Because what happens? If you don't perform well, well, we're either going to trade you or kill you. That's what they do to slaves. But you're not a slave anymore. You're not a slave. You're not under the law. You're under grace. You've come into a new covenant through the blood of Jesus. You are in Christ. I'm telling you, even if you've been in church 20 years, I don't think we fully grasp this revelation of who we are in Christ yet. There's so much there. In him, we're healed. In him, we're delivered. In him, we're, we're, we're pros prosperous. Everything that we need is in him. And when we can get a hold of that revelation, the Lord, just we pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would come upon us, that we would know your love, that we would know that we're in Christ, that we would be free from religious mindsets. Lord, even tonight, we pray for even the Amish community in this whole region, God. Lord, that you would bring revelation, Lord, of your love. Lord, that it's not about performance, that it's not about perfection, Lord, but it's about your goodness. It's about you loving us as a father. Lord, even those who haven't had fathers who loved. Lord, break us out of these wrong mindsets and wrong mentalities that cause us to do weird stuff. Lord, we need you so much. We need you so much. I'm not going to go on and on. We're going to share tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to pray for you tonight. If you've been in a place where you've felt like you've been in a striving place, you're struggling, you're trying, you need to just be released tonight by the goodness of God, by the mercy and grace of God. I want to just tell you briefly, our ministry, we've been working on a documentary film about my grandfather's life called Fearless Faith. We've had an opportunity to put it out there literally to millions of people through different TV networks. My grandfather was a pioneer in Christian television, so all his friends were people like Paul Crouch, from TBN and Pat Robertson from, from CBN and Maura Cirillo from Inspiration Network. And so all these men are in our documentary sharing about things. And my goal is to inspire a new generation through here's someone's life who, who obeyed God's call in their life. And so we're raising the 50, we're raising the final $50,000 to edit this film. We have five terabytes of footage that we've shot all over the world. And we're believing God that we can finish this film in the next few months. 
And I'm believing God for that to come in. On a second note, my close friends and even my own father were victims of this hurricane down in South Florida where they lost everything. And so we believe God's called us through our ministry uh, division called Planet Relief to go to Florida and help. I mean, they're literally feeding people, 50 people a night at the church. Several of these people don't have a place to live. We're going to have to take teams down there to clean out their houses. And so just to kind of give you an overview and an idea what, what, what our ministry is doing, it's not just about telling people, hey, we're praying for you. God bless you. If I see my brother in need and I don't go and help him, how does God's love abide in me? And so, you know, we want to go to Africa and we want to go to these places. That's great, but we got people in our backyard that need our help right now. And so that's kind of where we're at. We're, again, believing God to have a 1,000 people give $100, and we believe that that will be the seed to start this project where we literally have construction guys who are going to go. But, I mean, I was there. Our, our ministry was there in Hurricane Harvey. You know, these people... They don't, they're not ready to build yet, but what they need is they need somebody to come down there with a young back and help shovel out the mud that's in their kitchen, the mud that's across their, their house, and just, you know, clean it out. We got to gut it. We got to cut the drywall out and have a dumpster and throw the stuff out, you know, just work. Can you imagine? What's that like, you know, getting people to just give their time? So, again, I want to ministry tonight, and we're going to do that in just a few minutes, but I just want you to just... Um, Know that God loves you so much, and he's freeing us from this performance mindset in the church so that we can come into the fullness of what God has for us. We can't get there through our own striving, through our own struggling. It's, it's almost like this. I mean, you can use an example like this. If I come up to you and I say, hey, I got an 8-track. Can I plug this into your iPhone? It's like, well, of course you can't. There's no slot on your iPhone for an 8-track. It's incompatible. And so that's the, the things that we've, these old ways of doing things, they're not going to work in the next thing that God wants to do. We have to say yes, Lord, to the new thing so we can function into what he, he has for us. He has great things for us. We're in an exciting time. He says, behold, I do a new thing. Remember in Isaiah? And so I believe that we're at that time, and it's up to us to just yield and surrender, and guess what? We're going to get caught up in the overflow of God's Spirit.